And interestingly, we were, we were trying to come up with a new model because the economics, we figured the economics of healthcare, if we don't fix it, could end up bankrupting the nation. And also the model of healthcare was wrong. The difference between 20, 30 years ago and today is that one is, is the, the velocity of change driven by technologies are you know, happening at, at a level that no one really could accurately forecast. And I, I spent a lifetime trying to forecast this, but then what happened is I got caught up in a lot of what the innovations are. So I, I guess what I would say is we are at a point right now, you know, we're, we're on the other side of Moore's Law, so technology is evolving faster than Moore's Law. Hey guys, before we get started, I want to tell you about today's show sponsor, Carta. Carta simplifies how startups manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. Go to carta.com slash syndicate to get 10% off and learn more about how they can help you with managing your complicated cap table and keeping investors happy. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. James, you have a really interesting background, and I'm curious, what made you become fascinated with the future? Well, I think part of it is the way our brains work. Uh, we don't think about it, but a lot of people live in the past, a lot of people live in the present, and then there's a bunch of us who tend to envision things that look into the future. I learned early on that I had a bit of a talent for that. And that's also tied to hardwired to our evolutionary biology, that how we, uh, which differentiates us from other species, other animals, other creatures, uh, humans have the ability to be able to forecast complex modeling about what events may occur. Now, not necessarily, you know, being a fortune teller, but we have the ability to be able to predict, which is part of how we've led to survival. So I, I kind of learned about all this as I was um, getting out of my undergraduate program in school and found myself back in New York City. And uh, I started working with a fellow by the name Alvin Toffler, who is kind of the granddaddy of futurists. And he wrote a book called Future Shock, which talked about how, you know, we weren't really prepared for the future and how to manage change. And I had been a, a health policy advisor uh, for the U.S. government and uh, ran a think tank. And I became really interested in his whole thesis. So I started working with him in New York and then in Washington. And that was the first time I started to realize that there was a body of work around uh, future studies and future forecasting that was, you know, very much uh, intrigued me as a social scientist. So I uh, worked with Alvin and I worked with a number of folks to help understand how we could better predict the future. And that was particularly around things such as, you know, where was healthcare going in the future, demography and population. Then, of course, I came out to California and got involved with technology. And that really blew my whole world up. What was it like working with the government in a think tank type capacity? You're working in innovation with arguably some of the least innovative people or organizations. Is there a challenge or a dichotomy? Well, you know, first of all, let me say that there is this notion that uh, bureaucrats and government uh, and, and I guess I, I show this to a certain extent that they are not, you, you, it's hard to be uh, innovative in one of the largest bureaucracies in the world. And that's certainly true. But I felt that I ran into a lot of innovative people and it was a, it was a challenge. But I will say at that time, this is under Secretary Califano, we really were trying to, uh, I, gosh, this is when I was 
you know, really in my 20s, before I came out to California and joined Apple, that we were really trying, we, we knew the healthcare system was broken. And interestingly, we were trying to come up with a new model because the economics, we figured the economics of healthcare, if we don't fix it, could end up bankrupting the nation. And also the model of healthcare was wrong. And, and to, quite frankly, we had a lot of folks in government that were very aware and very helpful. So I, I would say that that process was just like dealing with a lot of organizations today, whether private sector or, or government sector, a lot of folks that resist change, and there's a lot of folks that want to help you with that change. And if you've got more of the right ones that want to work with you and see the future as you do, you get stuff done faster. And, and that's at that time, we got stuff done faster. It just didn't quite take. It was a, we were a little ahead of our time. This, we created the whole wellness prevention early models at the government level. And then there just wasn't enough consensus, you know, throughout government and the private sector in 1976. So we had to wait about a decade for the rest of the planet to wake up with us. Even then, we're still kind of fighting that, fighting that same battle to, to some extent. But we could, we, could, we could punch around healthcare as, as long as we wanted to. It's a pretty big punching bag. Let's, um, let's focus on some of, the, some of the more interesting stuff you've been focused on more recently. So you, you worked with Alvin. What was that like? Al Toffler was a, a, really a maverick. He had been a, an, an editor at a magazine, Look Magazine. He'd been uh, an author, and his book, I think, surprised him even more so. Uh, it was great. It was great to work with him. I actually worked out of, out of his apartment, and we had a small group of folks, uh, and then we were advising. We set up something called the Anticipatory Democracy Network, which was to advise Congress. And uh, you know, he, he did all the really heavy lifting. Uh, I was almost an intern uh, learning. But you know what? The, the things that I learned uh, working with him and being mentored by him really helped me later on. When I, I, I started my own think tank, the Health Policy Council, we really, uh, I incorporated a lot of things into that. And, and you know, he was, it was a great mentoring experience for me. But when I came out to California and joined Apple Computer, you know, in early on in 1980, by then it had fully baked into me that what businesses and governments, all of us, were not thinking hard enough about the future. We were not planning for the future as smart as we could be. We were not really positioned for the future. And that, you know, when I realized all the technological changes that were happening on the planet, particularly what I learned entering Silicon Valley, it really, it's like I started life all over again. And I have to credit uh, Al Toffler with just kind of pointing me in the right direction and saying, hey, you know, let's take a look at change differently. And he was early on with understanding that technology was a key change driver that we just did not know enough about. How has your views on the future changed, especially how you view at how you view or think about where the future and where we are today and what direction we're headed and how we can best move to kind of ride the waves versus crashing them, so to speak? Well, you know, things have changed in the past 25, 30 years. I mean, even at Apple, I thought that, you know, we, much of what occurs in Silicon Valley occurs in the lab before it occurs in the marketplace. And that's still pretty much true, except now that it's not just Silicon Valley, there's thousands of Silicon Valleys around the world. So the, what's, the difference between 20, 30 years ago and today is that one is, is the, the velocity of change driven by technologies are you know, happening at, at a level that no one really could accurately forecast. And I, I spent a lifetime trying to forecast this, but then what happened is I got caught up in a lot of what the innovations are. So I, I guess what I would say is we are at a point right now, you know, we're, we're on the other side of Moore's Law, so technology is evolving faster than Moore's Law. That's a metric. 
So I was looking at, for instance, some changes that are going on in genetics. So instead of you know, power and databases and accumulation occurring according to Moore's law every 18 months or 12 months, I, I'm looking at metrics now of things that are evolving within three months, doubling in power. So we're living at a time of very accelerated changes. And, uh, when, and if you really want to look at the tools that we have and, and that are really different today, I mean, today, I mean, 30 years ago, we were still arguing over climate change. It was still, you know, you were, if you supported climate change, you were really on, you, you were way out there. You were crazy. I remember first speaking to corporate boards of defense companies and giving presentations on climate change. And, you know, they thought I was just nuts, but I had a good PhD and good credentials, so they couldn't dismiss me so easily. But I would say that the difference now is that a lot of things we talked about that were real game changers or we predict, I predict that as a game changer, as did some others, have now come to pass. Things like climate change, or things like alternative energy, things like, of course, uh, every business is moving to the cloud, uh, uh, robotics, artificial intelligence, IoT, Internet of Things. These are things that can be used, and I think here's the big shift, I think they can be used for the, the great betterment of humanity. And I think in the past, you know, 30 years ago, they were not, one, on everybody's radar, two, they weren't viewed as being, you know, tool sets that could be used to better society because people didn't envision that they would be available. And three, things that even in my first book published in 1995, Techno Futures, I forecasted, you know, the private space industry, uh, robotics, the next generation of artificial intelligence, you know, even that seemed wild. Yet, I would say about 90% of those things have come to pass. So we're at an era which is somewhat predictive for me uh, and harkens back to my, my past, which is, you know, we have the tools to be able to create significant changes for the betterment of civilization. And I think that they can both provide uh, prosperity as well as opportunity, but it's really an entirely new ballgame. So, you know, every, just figure every 30 to 90 days, you're going to see a new innovation that's going to break through and disrupt existing norms. And that's, you know, quantum computing tomorrow is going to upset supercomputers today. CRISPR genetic engineering is going to upset traditional biology. You're going to look at whole new levels of big data genomic uh, analysis is going to completely transform healthcare. So, you know, we're in an era of the kind of convergent explosive change, which to me is very exciting because it, we, we need some of these tool sets to be able to deal with the challenges in front of us at a global level. You know, I was in a, I was doing a project for the World Bank about six months ago, and I was in a conference room in Amsterdam for the World Bank, and sitting next to the World Bank officials was a small group of, of leaders of nations. Sitting right next to the, the head of population and food uh, was the head of the company for Microsoft, and then there was the head from Iran sitting next to the United States, representative sitting next to the head of Russia. You know, there are some issues that are so big that you need to collaborate and cooperate around together. You're going to need these tools to work together. If we're going to feed the planet of 8 billion people over the next not even, you know, 15 years and then move towards 9 billion, the world has to cooperate at a level that we haven't seen before. So even the geopolitical environment uh, is going to shift dramatically as well.
Yeah, it's, it's crazy. We're operating not just in an exponential, but in an exponential of exponentials because every technology seems to layer upon itself and converge for even faster innovation. How do we change the paradigms that we're operating under currently? Can we keep a multi-country system? Can we keep a capitalist type system and have this type of drastic change and be able to effectively survive and thrive that? Well, I, I think that, again, I'm a, I'm a free enterprise, free speech, free markets, futurist, um, and I work across, I'm apolitical, I work around the world. But I would say that, you know, capitalism is, uh, I know there's been a, a lot of drama about, you know, in 2008, the recession occurred, Financial Times was just uh, issue, column after column, issue after issue, the death of capitalism, along with socialism, you know, I, again, I don't like to get involved with those ideologies. I do think that for all intents and purposes, people's, do not, do not deny people's ability to be able to, in a free democratic society, have the right to uh, own property and, and build their own businesses. And, you know, the next Teslas, the next Microsofts, next Googles, the next, you know, Ubers, they all come from ind individuals, many of them, including, you know, Google uh, is one example. They all come, many of them come from uh, folks that are not uh, U.S. or not from the West or not from developed nations. So again, we're already, we've already, I think, the experiment has already, we've already gotten the results that indiv empowered individuals with innovation tools are creating opportunity. You know, here you've got a guy, you know, I'll make an example. It's like, you know, uh, Elon Musk came from South Africa. He knew nothing about the space in industry or about electric cars. And he may be, you know, somewhat erratic in his management style, but he's created a lot of jobs and a lot of wealth, and a lot of opportunity for, for and broke the paradigm in terms of private space industry and, and electric cars. You know, there's a guy by the name of Tom of Ford, right? He went ahead and started a car company. He knew nothing about cars, nothing. He knew a bit about manufacturing, a little bit about finance, a little bit about supply chains. But, you know, uh, he went ahead and formed the first car company, didn't know anything. So, you know, we, I'm a great believer that entrepreneurs with the right kind of tools and the right kind of prowess, the right kind of guts and grit have the ability to be able to change the world for the better. And I, and I think that that's still true. Now, you want to call that capitalism, I think that that, or free enterprise, I think that'd be smart to do that. But I, all I know is when you look at the data, and I'm a data scientist by heart, you know, if you look at the data about where the patents are, where the inventions come from, you know, where the next innovations are, and I've identified, you know, five key technologies that will transform the next 100 plus years, nano, bio, IT, neuro, and quantum. And you look at all of those, I can take every single technology from blockchain to AI to robotics and find a home with them underneath that model. And that model was developed when I and my colleagues were at the National Science Foundation, which is a think tank for the U.S. government. We were trying to look out in the future and figure out, you know, what are the convergent technologies that will transform science, industry, and society? And, and we came up with this model over a decade ago. Uh, and I would say that that's still fairly true. But at the core of it, putting aside all the great technologies, there's, a, there's empowered individuals. Many of them are immigrants in their, in their nation who have come up with inspiring ideas, and they don't necessarily all graduate from Harvard or the Indian School of Technology or Oxford. They're individuals who are, who are really hungry. They're multidisciplined, holistic, and they understand the mind of the innovator, not because they studied it, because they live it. So that's, I, I really do believe that free enterprise entrepreneurs 
will change the future. I completely agree with you. I believe entrepreneurs and startups are the future, I think. On large notes, the government's failed much of innovation. A lot of large corporations have as well, but startups seem to. Breakthrough, my question was primarily playing devil's advocate of if we are advancing into a post-accelerated or significantly changed world and environment through the stats and systems of the past necessarily make sense. Speaking of the past, James is about to share a shocking stat about North America and some of the biggest problems that we and our cities are facing that we've never even considered. This one's a shocker, so stay tuned. Well, I think, uh, again, some things make sense and some things don't make sense. I'm not one to throw out you know, the baby with the bathwater. If you just take the, uh, the electric generation system in uh, North America, you know, we've already, I mean, a lot of, a lot of electrification in uh, the U.S. And, and Europe and to even a greater extent in Asia, but certainly in North America, I can speak, you know, it's based on an 18th and 19th century model. I mean, just the way we make, generate, and distribute energy. We, I and mean, we do a better job with the internet. If the energy infrastructure of North America, South America, the rest of the world, if the world looked like how we operate the internet, if the energy distribution platform and generation platform look like that, you know, you'd have a lot more efficiency. You'd have a lot more effectiveness. So, you know, I, I think that there are some things looking back, you know, in other words, I, I, surgery and the traditional healthcare system is predicated on disease care, right? That's something as a Canadian, you know, you, you all were, uh, I studied the Canadian healthcare system in the 70s because it was well advanced in terms of trying to figure out how do you deliver healthcare to your population. So I'm not in favor of necessarily throwing out the past if it works, but I do think we need to do a better job. And some of the ancillary reasons for, you know, we, we, we don't use data properly. I mean, you think about how many organizations are still moving paper around instead of digital information. We still don't have a digital record for healthcare. I mean, there's a lot of innovations, quite frankly, that are from the past that we just haven't figured out how to get right. Part of it is in the U.S., we've got you know, 300 million people, uh, they're trying to learn from our mistakes in China with a billion three in, in India. So, you know, dealing with digital transformation of nations or planets to provide better healthcare, security, let's say education, we're moving in that direction. It's, you know, this, I would forecast that over the next 10 years, we will exponentially be able to deliver to the next billion people on the planet integrated solutions. You know, I look at it as smart cities. I look at the world differently than how some people look at it. So I don't look at the world as nations, regions, or continents. I look at it as all geo-intelligent and, and one distributed uh, ecosystem. And I look at the key cities, uh, the movement towards smart cities that leverage technologies that we haven't even scratched the surface. It's very hard for people to see that future, but I, I work with a lot of companies and advise them and governments to get them to kind of, you know, move in the direction, you know, what would it be like? We could create an energy system that captures kinetic energy from every car, every person walking, every vehicle, every public transportation. We have, we don't have yet artificial intelligence built into buildings or cities to trade energy to create new kinds of ecosystems. And if, once you start to think more holistically about, you know, once you start thinking about the blockchain, genomics, nanotechnology, which is really about material science, and then you think about the next generation of computers, which will be based on quantum information systems, I think more holistically about these, these frameworks, and then I start to see commerce embedded in part of that. That's a new world. That's not 
you know, right now we have kind of a, an older world where even though we're talking about blockchain, it's fairly new. We're talking about artificial intelligence. It's still being proven out. We're talking about quantum computers, only really two, three companies that have solutions there. But as in fact, one of them is in Burnaby, Canada. I keep my eye on so you know, we just we just had D Wave on. Actually, who did you talk to? It was a Bo. No, uh, the 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 founder Eric Ladizinski. Yeah. So you know, uh, Bo's a chairman, and he came out of the computing space. But the, the point of it is, is that uh, in a series that I participated with, uh, that was published by the New York Academy of Sciences, we try to present a new framework for thinking about science. Now, you don't need to be a scientist to involve this, but a new framework would say, how do we start thinking about problems and solutions with a different kind of holistic systems approach? How do we start thinking about them not just as, okay, here's the robotic solution or an IT solution or a genetic solution or a nano or a neuro or a, or a quantum solution? What does it look like we start thinking about science as a, as a more convergent platform of different technologies that become stacks of deliverables, and they're part of the same conversation. It's the same kind of visual field. So part of the problem we have is that we just, you know, Einstein talked about how we, we, uh, our problems, we don't have the mental frameworks to be able to address many of the problems that face the planet. Some of those things are, are still vexing today. I mean, a, million, a billion people hasn't seen a clean glass of water. You know, we're still, we still don't have an integrated digital supply chain for food and agriculture. So again, I'm a great believer that the private sector can help move faster than the government sector and try to address some of these with, with great innovations. But it's going to take individuals, empowered individuals, people who are listening to this podcast to be able to say, wait a minute, I'm inspired by that. And that's why I, I, I write my books, Future Smart, and that's why I appear on here because I feel that if we can get people to think differently about the future, they can help shape it. That's my kind of my message. Don't just forecast it. You can shape it. Learn about the tools to shape it. That's exactly why we run the podcast, because we think that that can have exponential impacts. Do you think? So a big part of the, the problem, at least based off of how you outlined it and how I would outline it as well, is, is specific versus systems thinking and approach. And I know with education, typically we're creating monkeys able to do one job. And do you think the, the system of overly niched and specific education, I mean, if you want to get a PhD, you basically can't tie your shoes. So is that kind of the problem that we don't have enough interdisciplinary work or is it not enough interdisciplinary thought and teams? Uh, you know, it's a good question. I, I, think, I think having a PhD myself and, and having done my thesis in systems, I can tell you that uh, a lot of things, you know, the arrogance of current intellectual pursuits says that we live in this era where everything that we do must be better and smarter than what has occurred by our, our ancestors. And it's just not true. All right. It's, it's just not true. So the ability to be able to be interdisciplinary was the way that people operated for centuries. And we just kind of need to. So part of the answer is we need to break down the silos. We've talked about that in certainly, you know, business. I spend about a third of my time working with the largest companies and bureaucracies in the world, helping them be more agile and smarter about technology. I work then with you know, startups who are, uh, so they don't repeat the same mistakes that you know, big companies have done and then a fair amount of folks I work with that are just trying to reinvent the future from wherever they are. I think anybody can you know, start to ask the questions uh, to try to approach principles. You know, I, I like the idea that, um, let me do it this way, traditional education has a role. You don't need to have a PhD or, or even a master's to do engineering today. 
Okay. You don't need to have, you may need to have an MD to do medicine, but there's a whole, there'll be, there, there's evolving and entirely new kinds of educational ways for people to get educated. You know, Microsoft, Google, a lot of high tech companies are hiring people who have, uh, don't have a classic form formidable education, but they have the ability to be able to, you know, they've gotten trained in a particular, whether it's a digital technology or it's Python for coding or, I'll give you a good example of, of what I'm saying, this kind of nonlinear thinking. So Kaggle is a data science uh, platform on the web where, where people post problems they're trying to solve, and they have, uh, it's, crowd, it's crowdfunding of problem sets with awards. And it's a data science, it appeals to the data science community because some of these are just completely outrageous kinds of problems. Some of them are very deep, you know, they're particularly about pharmaceuticals or, you know, disease or they're about, you know, certain big things. So one of my favorite examples to illustrate what I'm talking about is that on Kaggle, uh, NASA had been trying to figure out the size of dark matter in the universe, right? Just, just try to put, keep that in, in perspective. They're trying to figure out how big it was. And, and they really had been, they failed for about 11 years to come up with a, a good model to try to understand the size, to measure the size of dark matter in the universe. So just to give you a perspective, you know, the, the largest part, uh, let's say the smallest part of the cosmos is what you can see. That means all the planets, all the great stuff you can see in a telescope or our advanced communications. It gives us the ability. So imagine that all the comets, you know, the black holes, whatever we can see, which is the galaxy, that's the smallest part of the cosmos. The largest part of it is kind of called a dark matter, exotic matter. It's, it's, it's invisible to the eye. And it's, it, we don't even know how big it is. It's huge. But it's much larger by you know, measurements, Google Plus, that we don't understand. So they put this challenge up on Kaggle, recognizing, now keep in mind that all of the astrophysicists, the top folks at NASA, and collaborating with all the other top folks around the world could not solve this problem. Well, within 90 days, the problem was solved. Who was it solved by? A graduate student at, 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 I believe, Oxford, and his specialty had nothing to do with astrophysics. It had to do with glacialology. He studied glaciers, and he created mathematical big data science models for studying glaciers. And he took that and he extrapolated it, and he, he then used that to come up with a model, a metric, a tool to understand dark matter, the size of dark matter in the universe. Now, I could give you 10 more examples or 100 more examples than that, but we live in a world where our problems, they outpace the disciplines, which we call education. I had a daughter who went to a very nice uh, university and graduated. She went for marketing and communications. She didn't get one course in uh, communications on social media, not one. And I remember talking to the head of the department. I said, how is it possible that, you know, my daughter graduated here in communications and she studied a lot of important scholarly things about communications, but there wasn't one course in, so, in, in social media. How is that possible? I said, well, you know, we're studying it and, you know, we think it's really important. And, you know, maybe, so you see where I'm going here? Traditional education is, if it doesn't transform itself, it will decline as a model for preparing people for the future. And you're going to have a lot of outside-of-the-box thinking, and that's what we need oftentimes to be able to resolve these large problems. So I would not have any listener think that he or she needs to go get a degree uh, from a traditional organization in order to do the things that they need to do. When I look around me, you know, Bill Gates, you know, left uh, Harvard's MBA program before he finished it, I believe. Um, Steve Jobs never graduated from college. You have a lot of people who got trained in one thing and ended up doing something else, like Elon Musk. 
So again, I would I think it's a great time to be an entrepreneur and go invent the future, but that may mean also thinking more about, you know, go study lots of different things. You may find something in archaeology that has a huge impact on transforming healthcare, or if you want to impact on something, may look outside of the field itself. I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, or startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity. It's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picarda fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full-service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com slash syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com slash syndicate. The most valuable way that we or that I can think of for driving education is just driving interest. So at French FM, we get the world's smartest folks talking about a whole myriad of different topics, but everyone gets turned on to something. And then they're going to study much harder than they would if it was an exam, et cetera. I agree college for, for most things. I mean, if it's not STEM, it's pretty much, it's pretty much a joke for college, but that's a, that's a whole nother, a whole nother thing. And I think we would agree on most of that. So we can, we can skip around that. What are, what are the biggest risks, both catastrophic and existential that you see? Well, I think the largest one is in itself existential. How about an existential risk about existential risks? The biggest one is that we as a, and, and, and I, I got taught this to me by another mentor, Buckminster Fuller, Bucky Fuller. You know, he, he kept talking about, you know, will humanity pass, you know, the, our, our exam? Will we succeed? Will we pass or fail? And what he was really signaling was, I've come to realize, will we apply what we know fast enough uh, and smart enough to be able to create a better world for all of us? I think that's one challenge that we face, okay? So the biggest risk is that we don't realize that we as a civilization and soon to be a spacefaring civilization, that we don't, you know, the greatest risk is not realizing that we shape the future. The, sh- the future is not a benign or a force unrelated to human volition and choice and will. So that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And that may mean really a rethinking in governance and power and entrepreneurship and, you know, the role of parties to work together. So the the one big global risk is, like I say, is is the inability to be able to see whether you're an individual or an institution or a government, that you have the ability to be able to, you can make a difference in changing and altering the future. Okay. That's number one. It's basically inertia. It's more than inertia. It's it's just also just taking care of me. So uh, I think that the, the second part of that is kind of, I talked about it as kind of spiritual capitalism when I was 
touring India, I was giving a, a talk to a lot of uh, uh, academic and, and uh, financial institutions. Spiritual capitalism is really about you know, being able to involve the, uh, larger purposes for more what we call social accountability. So, but at the same time, another existential risk, risk that I think that we face is addressing issues that could end up taking apart. I mean, if we, if we don't fix climate change, and that means fixing energy fast enough, and that means fixing food production fast enough. And these are big issues to, to address. They, they likely will lead to risk factors that you can't undo. There is a third risk factor, which I, do, I am concerned about, is you've got a competition for power on the planet that seems to be inevitable, headed towards a certain collision. You know, I've written uh, for 30 years about cooperation, global cooperation and global security, but in, inevitably, you know, you have rising populations, you have, uh, you don't have as much cooperation on food production, for instance, agriculture, uh, as we should. So those are areas that people don't think about, but they're critically important. The other key risk factor, I think, is, you know, what will be the, 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 the privacy and, and I think ultimately the democracy of the individual? You know, the, the, there's a fundamental risk in our future, which, you know, artists and writers and filmmakers have been pointing us towards, which is the control of technology to be used against society, to be used against the individual, I think is a, is a risk factor that I would say the risks are, are growing. And you'll just look at the list of, of not hot wars, but now information wars around the planet, this whole issue of fake identities, not just fake news, but the whole notion that there are governments that really are interested and organizations not interested in the protections of privacy and individualization and the ability to be able to have free and open societies. There's an attack against the individual. And I think that that may be the freedom of the individual. That may, be, that may define the future you know, in many, many ways. You know, I'm, I'm, I do think there's a risk factor associated with advanced technologies, you know, the singularity issue of computers, AIs, robotics, uh, changing our world in fundamental ways and that having an impact on our ability to be able to find work or find jobs or even thinking about, you know, what is the purpose of work? I think that that is an existential threat, but that is something that we know about. You know, that's something that's emerging and that will require human beings to do what we do best, which is adapt. We learn new things. We adapt pretty quickly. That's been the secret of humans' capacity to survive, you know, ice ages and climate changes and, and, uh, and threats and attacks and war. I mean, that's kind of what we do. So do I think that that is an existential threat, the rise of, you know, super intelligent uh, technology forces that could take away our jobs? Well, I'm less concerned about that. I am concerned, but less concerned about that than becoming uh, the dehumanization, uh, uh, the use of technology to dehumanize individuals and creating an, an, you know, a population of people that get used to the, the lack of morals or values that we uh, have defined our cities and villages, the ideology of freedom uh, that has been so important to all the progress and prosperity really in the past you know, 500 years has been based on that. Technology used in the hands of 
let's say bad actors, they could be governments, they could be, you know, individuals as such, that is a threat that we should definitely watch out for. It's pithy, but the the path to hell is paved in good intentions. I would argue that probably the two of the worst governments for this would be China and the US. And the US is much less frequently brought up. But I think just the, the surveillance state movement towards protecting people from terrorism. I mean, if you haven't seen Snowden, you should watch Snowden. It'll be a shocker. And then you'll go back to posting on Facebook and be totally fine with it. But I think that apathy that people have towards privacy is actually pretty dangerous because it allows governments to become larger and larger and larger and more bureaucratic and controlling. Well, you know, I'm going to push back on that. And, and I did see Snowden and I'm pretty familiar with that whole ring. We had something called 9-11 in America. It wasn't made up and, and affected uh, America's psyche because Amer- your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. So though we, have, we are the last, if you will, superpower today, I think that could be challenged, sort of largest superpower, we had vulnerabilities. We had arrogance. We were not ready for that attack, and it wasn't an attack. And today, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, there's a new kind of 9-11. It's very difficult to be able to just surgically carve out one piece of this. And I'm the one that raised in this podcast my concern about the attacks on the individual. The misuse of surveillance is certainly part of that in terms of attacks on, on personal liberty. And I've already keyed out and said, you know, boy, the, the entrepreneurs and freedom and liberty are critical to our future. So I'm, I'm the first one to be able to say that. But I do think reaching a balance, you know, a democratically elected government, whether you like it or not, uh, you get the leaders that you vote for. And that's true in Canada, the United States, and to a certain extent, Europe and the rest of the world. But, you know, I, I think rather than, than, you know, I just finished working on a project that tried to identify, you know, who what are the pro- who attacked American diplomats in China and Cuba with the use of this new kind of sonic, or now it's been called a microwave weapon? You know, we live in a world where there are bad guys, and we and some of them are governments, some of them are rogues, and some of them are you know just private sector folks that are coming after us. And there's a whole spectrum of folks. So for you know what we have that is on our side in a democracy, they have the right to be able to kind of police people and put people in place. Is it ever going to be a perfect situation? No, it's not. But at the end of the day, I think that having an active media press and having an open democratic society where you can challenge authority and inappropriate use of authority and power, I think that's part of the process of what democratic institutions have going for them. And, you know, try to do that when you're in China, try to do that when you're in Russia. And there's dozens of other countries on every continent that feel completely differently to that. So I think this tension between security on one side and privacy on the other, and somewhere in the middle is the state that is, you know, mediated on liberty and democracy. I think that's the model where we are best as individuals, we can succeed and find that balance. And I do think that we all have a role to play in that, including you and me. I would agree. Also, just to clarify, I am American. I'm I'm from the States. I was in New York when uh, everything went down. But I just see personally every year where the, the momentum, and we can end this topic here, but every year the momentum is moving more and more towards a surveillance type system. Well, it might be a percentage or two, but over time, a percentage or two is exponential and ends at, well, the end. So that that's kind of my thoughts. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting, but, you know, up until almost 10 years ago, Almost up to you know nine eleven. It's very interesting. You know, you know the country with the most uh, surveillance cameras 
the UK. Exactly. Throughout Europe, and then the second was Japan, right? China, there wasn't. It's very interesting. When you go to China, you walk around, you hardly ever see a policeman. You want to find a policeman, if he, if he or she is not directing traffic, you have to go kind of look for there. You have to find a police station to go in there. In Europe, they're, you know, they're all over the place. And for good reasons, right? For good reasons. So, you know, oftentimes what you said earlier, oftentimes the obvious is not always what you think it is. So I'm, I'm having work with, I work with all kinds of organizations. Some of them are government organizations. Most of them are private sector and many of them are startups. I think this tension, which we have to, I'm not saying we got it right, but this tension that's defined, this is going to define our future is how free we are, how private our privacy is, and how secure we are. And getting that tension right within the law, I think is going to be very interesting and it could be a huge existential challenge for us. By the way, for, you know, if you're in Russia, if you're in Miramar, you're in, in, in China, these are going to be challenges that will define our future. Completely agreed. I bring it up because I think people need to at least think and talk about this. So you brought up five, five different um, subcategories of innovation that you were most uh, most keen on for the next hundred years. Can we cover those again and then look a little bit deeper into each? Yeah. So um, it's a challenging concept because it's not they don't exist as silos. They exist as part of a kind of a systems approach to thinking about rethinking science. So it, the first is the first component of this integrated framework is nanotechnology which is the manipulation of matter at the atomic level. Uh, though the, the rage has been, you know, certainly with the internet and big data and robotics and AI, you know, nanotechnology is a multi-billion dollar marketplace that is almost as important, if not more important, because you're talking about, you know, fundamentally manipulating matter at the atomic level, and that could lead to a transformation in transportation and materials that you wear, live, organs, could be many things. So nanotechnology is the first one. The second is, of course, what's happening in biotechnology, which is only in the past, not even 20 months, we've had a major breakthrough in CRISPR, which is a gene editing tool that's easier than playing video games. We don't know that that will be fully proven out yet and useful between stem cells and preventive and genomics. You're talking about the next generation of healthcare will be completely transformed by biotechnology, synthetic biology, and that'll have a massive impact on our future and lead to a new marketplace, a new discipline called health enhancement. Health enhancement will become what healthcare is today over the next, I would say, half a decade. And then, of course, so it's this nano, bio, IT, information technology, of course, is next generation of computers, uh, next, which is going to be based on and driven by quantum computing. We'll get to that in a moment. But everything related to robotics, wireless, IT, all your changes in blockchain analytics, the rise of data science, which is probably the most important science of all of them because it relates to all of them. So that's IT. And then, of course, you've got neurotechnology. Most people don't recognize that some of the subset of artificial intelligence that's really proven up is based on neural nets, the way the brain works, the way the brain is broken down. We have technologies now that mimic neurons. Just like with biotech, we're going to head towards synthetic DNA, uh, which will have a massive impact on uh, longevity and, and the ability to be able to extend life. We have a massive new thinking about uh, neuroscience and the ability to be able to understand the mind differently. Most people don't realize that we're at the edge of you know a revolution 
in the mind because we're facing one out of, well, 50% of the planet is at risk for Alzheimer's and dementia and other kinds of cognitive dysfunctions. We're living longer, but we have not figured out the aged relationship between the mind and disease. So neuroscience is going to be fundamentally important. And I would forecast that as we'll have synthetic DNA in us, nanotechnology will build new organs, that we will have uh, uh, neural, new neural pathways will be designed in computers, and they will help us restore memories in our lifetime. And that's just one part of pro reprogramming. People don't realize it's about a trillion dollars in trading that's done a day over stock markets that are based on neural nets, which are really computer-based models, a form of AI. And then the last is perhaps the most interesting, which is quantum computers. And quantum computers, don't look at them just like, you know, encryption or, yeah, you had a podcast on this, but look at it like quantum computers are new tools, new tools that will help us solve huge global problems and personal problems. And again, support entrepreneurs to create, whether you're in healthcare or transportation or finance, or be able to come up with, you know, how do we create batteries that can hold a billion times more energy storage? Well, that will transform uh, energy on the planet. How do we come up with understanding cancer, which is a, a composite of, of diseases, because we can't understand it now enough to be able to manage it and interdict it, prevent it? How do we manage all the tremendous amounts of data around disease entities? Right now, we just started to apply AI to to healthcare for lung disease with IBM's Watson. How do we do that? Not wait 20 years, but we do that in two years. So quantum computers are an entirely new kind of engine of the next economy. Now, finally, if you take these five, nano, bio, IT, neuro, and quantum, how do we now get ready to kind of blow your mind? How do we think about these five technologies as really fingers on your hand? They're part of the same stack how do we rethink a convergent science? Now, when we first proposed this, this was proposed by myself and my partners at NSF under Mike Rocco, who's head of the nanoscience directorate at NSF. And then we had uh, uh, the first Nobel Prize winner who was part of our team and Jerry Jonas, and, and there were like five of us that proposed this. It was completely misunderstood. Nobody was, it was very hard to think about the systems approach to science. At the end of the day, I believe that Thinking about these in, a, in terms of convergent science, and this goes beyond you know, exponentials. Uh, and I was part of the team that helped start, I was part of the founding team at Singularity University. So it goes beyond just exponential, which is one metric. You got to think about problems and solutions in larger sets of tools. And these five tools together represent a new way of thinking. And uh, so that's what my, my books have been about for 30 years and my forecasts have been about. And I'm, I'm a student in trying to do this as well, not an expert. How would you recommend that those listening with power think about, think about the, the systems approach? How can people learn to think in this way? Well, I think how you learn to think in this way, for each of these, you can go about it a couple of different ways. One is you can kind of learn enough about each of these, for number one, to be able to start to see what the intersection points are between them. For instance, synthetic biology is actually a mashup, a combination of engineering and biology, right? It's a mashup, a combination. Think about what's the blockchain? Blockchain economics, which I've written extensively about, is really a fusion of economics and next-gen 
you know, computer science and entrepreneurship. So you can start, first you can study each of the components and then specifically look to find combinations of where you can work together. What does a nano bio chip look like? What does a neuro quantum device look like? See, that those are thought experiments, which by the way, you could ask, you know, I, I used to teach a, a program for my kids. I volunteered at school. I taught physics for kindergarten. Why should we wait to study that later? So, you know, what I guess I'm suggesting is one is you can certainly do the seminal work we did on this. Go, go do a search for Convergent Technologies, National Science Foundation, and see some of the original work. But then, again, if you start to look around you with this new framework, you can, you know, go, go look at the Synapse Project at DARPA, which, again, started to model the first synthetic neurons. If you start to look around you for these system convergences of different technologies, number one, you may find things that others didn't see. And two, you may yourself invent new solutions where the attributes of these different technologies, when used together, could, so- could create entirely new tool sets. And that's what we're beginning to see. And as you go far enough with most technologies, they all kind of become a bit of the same. So I know with, for instance, on the nanotech side, we were talking with someone before, what's the difference between biological manufacturing and 3D printing? Well, nothing really. If you really get down to a small enough scale of what you're talking about, it's kind of related to what you're saying in that science and technology are moving in one direction and it really only works effectively when you combine those directions. And I think you could get a lot more uh, value out of them too. Again, I'm saying this as a, as a social scientist who studied biological sciences and nanoengineering. I was, a, I was the first private sector advisor to the U.S. government on nanotechnology. And I'd love to tell you we knew exactly what we were doing, but we didn't. That's the other part I'd leave your listeners to is you don't have to have it right. You don't have to have it all figured out. It doesn't have to be perfect. Uh, go experiment. You'd be surprised hanging out with people in a laboratory or engineering or with a whiteboard, you bring people from different disciplines together and you can come up with solutions for things you could do, you, you, you couldn't do unless you had people from different interdisciplinary approaches, all looking at the problem from different points of view. Even people that have what we call, you know, a, a beginner's mind. Uh, part of the training of Zen is to have a beginner's mind so you can see things. You'd be surprised. Oftentimes, I, I'm on a project with um, uh, Toshiba many years ago, no, Fujitsu, I tried the first artificial life characters that we created. They came out of Carnegie Mellon. I gave them to uh, my, my five and eight-year-old to play with, and they taught me all kinds of things about the technology I just couldn't see because I didn't have a beginner's mind. So you don't need to be an expert to have a beginner's mind. In fact, it helps not to be. Have you experimented with meditation or psychedelics? I feel like you have for some reason. You know, I, I am a, over the years, I do Tai Chi Chuan, and I practiced martial arts for 35 years. I think that'll do it. It's a, a different way of thinking about things. I have one last question for you, and that's, if you had to leave people with something, it can be a quote, a call to action, anything, what would it be and why? Well, I would offer this. Ideas are often viewed as radical and disruptive. New ideas are often viewed as radical, disruptive, and unwanted. Don't take no for an answer. Figure out a way to build on your ideas. Figure out a way and ask for help. Don't let a good idea or it could be a, you know, a solution for something or an invention go on the wayside because 
most of uh, who you talk to said, gee, that would never work. You know, there are, there are, I'll leave you with this model, right? So there are, there are three or four ways of operating in the universe. One of the ways is to be uh, a traditionalist. A traditionalist says, you know, this is never going to work. Somebody I know tried it or even I did. It's never going to work. Don't just forget about it. Walk away. Generally, people that are in more power in an organization or people that are, have, you know, their, their business is kind of close stuff down. And then there's maintainers. Maintainers are they're, they're covert resistors of change. They don't want to see change. They don't even know they do. Where you want to be is an adapter or an innovator. Adapters are willing to learn new things. Be willing to learn new things. Big takeaway. Be willing to learn new things. And the last is, you know, innovators don't take no. They just figure out a way to build support for and, 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 and learn through and experiment to get their point across. We need more innovators that are willing to do, you know, radical innovation. And it starts within to do that. You got to make that decision to be that kind of person to go after that. Not, not someone's not going to come and rescue you. Someone's not going to support you. Uh, if you want, you look at the greatest innovators on our planet, most of them were told they can't do it. And we quite frankly, can't afford to not get it done. And, here's, and that may be whatever you want to challenge, go challenge it. That would be my best advice. I think that's incredible advice. And here's a, here's a little life secret, guys. The, the innovators and the adapters, those are the ones having the most fun and enjoying life to, to the fullest. Positivity has, a, has that impact on you. James, thanks so much for coming on today. It's been a lot of fun. I hope it's been incredibly helpful for people. Where's the best place for listeners to learn a little bit more about you and what you do? Um, they can clue into my, uh, my website or online. Uh, my Twitter handle is FutureGuru. My website they can get from futureguru.com. And I've got a, a recent video up on the internet. On, on just do a search for me. It's, I've got a TED Talk on the future of, of AI. And that's what I would, I think my website's probably a good place to go. Try futureguru.com or globalfuturist.com. And we'll throw links and all the good stuff in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Hope this has been fun. If it has, say thanks to James, leave us a review. And I think we've already figured out what you're supposed to do. Go to work and bang your head against the wall until you change the world. Something, <laughs> something like that. Thanks, James. Thank you. Take care. Listener, before you go, if you like Fringe FM, consider making a tax-deductible donation to support our mission. Yes, you heard that right. Tax deductible. Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a registered 501c3 nonprofit focused on advancing science worldwide. This means you can write off your donation for tax purposes and possibly even get your employer to match the donation, all of which would dramatically boost the level of good we can do in the world and the quality of the show that we can produce. To learn more about supporting Fringe FM and whether your gift would qualify to reduce your taxes, please visit fringe.fm give. If you care about our mission, please support our efforts. You are literally deciding whether or not we can continue and how much of an impact we can make. Again, that's fringe.fm give to learn more and support our cause. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.